You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Jordan. I'm part of the um, McLean group. <laughs> this morning we're in Psalm 51, 1 through 17. Um, I think it will be on the screen, but also you can turn in the ESV Bible that we have here. It's on page 474. <clears throat> have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your, pra- your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Jordan. Hey, uh, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. Under your chair, there is a connect card. If you would take a minute, fill that out. We would love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, to see how we could get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you're on your phone, um, we use the ESV. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Trenton will bring you one. We have some in the back. And again, if you're new, we're in a lament series, um, just so we're all on the same page. Lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow as an action. It's mourning the things in our lives and in this world that just aren't right. In Christian lament, it's our prayer language. It's how we bring our sorrow to God. Lament is how we navigate between... Uh, these two places in our lives where, where life is really hard and, and God in his sovereignty, his kingly rule, his kingly reign and control is worthy to be trusted. So up to this point, we've looked at some personal laments. Um, and two weeks ago, we looked at, at what's called a corporate lament. Today, we're going to look at another lament that is a personal lament. But this time, it's different than the God, I feel like you've left me. God, I feel like you've abandoned me type of lament. This type of lament is what is known as a penitential lament, which means this. A penitential psalm is written not in response to some feelings of abandonment, but these psalms are written in response to sins, sins committed. 
And so today we're going to look at one such psalm. And so as we jump in, I just want to call you to consider a few things this morning. Today as we are unpacking this text together, I want to call you to consider, number one, first the, the seriousness of sin and the nature of sin, what sin communicates, and then the consequences of it. And number two, in response to that, I want you to consider the kindness and graciousness of God to sinners. And then number three, um, what, are, what are we going to do with, with sin? What is our response to sin? What are we to do in response to the sin in our life? And so that's kind of the frame that I want to approach this text with you all this morning. Before we jump in, um, let's, let's pray because we need a lot of help from the Lord this morning. Lord Jesus, we need you. We are thankful people, Lord, that thankful that there is a way, Lord, that we have a mediator between us in our sin and you as a good and gracious and just and righteous judge. Lord, I pray this morning for conviction where conviction is needed. Pray for encouragement where encouragement is needed, Lord, that you would lift our chins and help us to see you high and lifted up, exalted King Jesus. Lord, may this knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us not lead us to complacency in our, in our walks with you, Lord, that it wouldn't lead us to acceptance or a passive viewing of our own sin, Lord, but that your love would call us to action, would call us to faith, would call us to confession, would call us to repentance. Draw us in, Jesus. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you would pray for yourselves, that the Lord would reveal your blind spots this morning that the Lord would show you your great need for him. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 51, beginning uh, in verse 1. I'm actually going to begin by reading uh, the... The prescript. I don't really know what these things are called, but if you're in your Bibles, little stuff written before the psalm. This says to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. In verse 1 it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Okay, so in order to understand this psalm, it's important to understand the context. It's important to know what happened in David's life that has led him to this point where he pins one of the most famous psalms that we have in our Bible. So to understand the circumstances around this psalm, we have to go to 2 Samuel, specifically chapter 11 and 12. Um, David is the king of Israel at this point, and the country of Israel is at war. So David's army is out on the battlefield, and they're just crushing their enemies. It's like App State versus A&M, like getting, A&M's getting crushed, you know. They're, sorry, Chad. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Condolences to you, buddy. Um, David's army's out in the battlefield. The enemies are getting crushed. But King David, he's not at war. Rather, he's back at the palace, 
And he's just kind of chilling there. So one day he's like, I think I'm going to go take a stroll on the roof of my house. And he glances off in the distance and he sees a beautiful woman and she's taking a bath. David's like, whoa, who is that? So David then learns that she's Bathsheba and Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite. David's completely undeterred by this news. He's like, hey, go get her. Tell her the king wants her. Bring her to my house. And then David, and just to spare the kids in the room, David has relations with Bathsheba. And from the appearance of the text in 2 Samuel, after the relations have taken place, he just kind of sends her away. Bathsheba turns up pregnant. So David then makes matters worse. He sends word to the battlefield, have Uriah brought home in order that David can try to cover up his indiscretion. He asks Uriah to come home. Uriah, David thinks, is going to have relations with his wife. And then everyone will think that Bathsheba is pregnant with Uriah's child and all will be none the wiser of what David has just done. But that's not what happened. Uriah refused to go home to the comforts of his home and to the loving arms of his wife, and he slept on the palace steps and then returned to the battle. Uriah was so loyal to the men on the field that this was sort of a protest for him. He wanted to remain in battle because he was a faithful dude. This is also where David was supposed to be. He was supposed to be at war with his men. So here in this text, we have the humility and faithfulness of Uriah juxtaposed against the pride and arrogance of David. So when David learns that Uriah doesn't go home, he continues to make matters worse. When he learns that Uriah didn't sleep with his wife, he sends Uriah to the front lines of the battle and then he orders that all the soldiers abandon Uriah when the battle was at its fiercest. Thus, David arranged for the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And then he took her as his own wife. Then we have David being confronted by the prophet Nathan, who gives David this parable. This is from 2 Samuel 12, um, verses 1 through 6, and it'll be on the screen. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and, his, and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and, and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David, after he was hearing this, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. We get a response from Nathan in verse 7 where he says, You are that man. Can you imagine how David feels in this moment? David has just been found out. 
This leads David to an admission of guilt and a, and a confession. In verse 13 in 2 Samuel 12, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice he doesn't say that he sinned against Bathsheba for forcing her into this relationship with him and then arranging for the murder of her husband. He doesn't say that he sinned against Uriah for having him murdered. He doesn't say I've sinned against the nation by causing them to lose a battle with a pagan nation that we're warring against. He doesn't say I've sinned against all these people in order to save face and save my reputation. He has sinned against all these people, and yet he doesn't start by saying these things. No, he says, I've sinned against the Lord, which leads David, the the musical king of the Bible, to pen the words we have in Psalm 51. In terms of lament, David begins with the direct address to God. But unlike other psalms of lament, this is also an appeal to God's nature and God's character. David is pleading for mercy as a person who is so undeserving of mercy. Mercy meaning we're not getting what we deserve. So David, knowing exactly what he deserves, is asking to be spared by God's mercy. David does not deserve this mercy, and yet he has been with God. He has seen God work, and he has seen God move throughout the history of the nation of Israel. He is experiencing and has experienced God's loving kindness to him and God's mercy to him before. And so with humility and confidence, David approaches his God. David is realizing how far his sin has taken him. He's realizing he is in desperate need of this mercy, which is demonstrated in the form of God's divine forgiveness to him. There's one scholar, Willem van Gimmeren, and he says that the sinner has no choice. There is nothing we can do but cast ourselves onto God's mercy. David is approaching God with the knowledge of what he's done. He knows he has no right in and of himself to approach God, but he calls to mind what he knows to be true about God. God is a God who is full of love and compassion. God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This word is hesed. If you remember this from a few weeks ago, when we see this in our English translations of the Bible, it can be translated loving kindness or steadfast love. It's a covenantal word. God, by his nature, has promised to forgive. And he does so not by any human merit, but simply by his love and compassion he has towards his people. Verse 1 from the onset of this psalm calls us to consider the steadfast love. Again, steadfast love, the word hesed, in the original language, it carries this weight of being steady and being sure and being an immovable anchor of hope. And it's met faithfulness. And they have met in the person and work of Jesus. And David approaches the God of love whose love is unfailing. David says also, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. This brings to mind for me the image of of washing dirty clothes. But not like my clothes that have just been worn. But clothes that are like filthy dirty. Like, you've ever seen that oil-filled guy checking out at H-E-B? 
we've all seen it. You know what I'm talking about. Or like this. One of my kids, man, poor girl, um, she's a lot like me. She can't eat without getting food all over her face and all over her clothes. And in order to save the clothes, Kendra and I have to go through a 27-step process of, of treating these shirts and pants and, and when we launder these clothes to get the stains out. You laugh because you know. <laughs> David is asking to be washed and cleansed like this and have the stains removed from him. But he's not asking out of guilt. He doesn't just ask because he's feeling guilty. He's not asking in order to absolve his bad feelings about what he's done and about this situation. David is asking for God to wash him and to cleanse him in the only way that God can do. There's no step-by-step process for David to wash himself or to cleanse himself. Listen, man, in and of ourselves, we cannot make ourselves clean. It is God who does the washing. It is God who does the cleansing. And he does so washing us in the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And in that blood, we're now washed whiter than snow. And this is the reality for those of you whose faith is in Christ. There is nothing other than confession and faith that we can offer to make ourselves clean. God must act on our behalf or we remain in our guilt. David gives us the model of confession. Look at what he says in verse 3. It says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Man, in this psalm, David says the word transgression over and over again. This Hebrew word, it's, it's got this idea of rebellion behind it. God, I have rebelled against you, and I'm aware of it. My sin is ever before me. My rebellion is ever before me, and I am haunted by what I've done. And he says it's only against the Lord that he has sinned. David is confessing in the knowledge of what he's done with specificity. Not just like, God, forgive me in general. No, David's sin is before him. He knows. I think if we were honest, we don't, we don't think about our sin this way. I think if we were all really, really honest, we may not think about our sin at all. And we only think about the sins that have been committed against us. And I don't say that for your guilt or for your shame or for your condemnation. I certainly don't say that to minimize or excuse the things that have been done to you or said about you. But I do want to call you to consider the utter destruction that sin has caused. And again, if we're honest, and we tend to minimize so much of our own stuff that we've lost sight of just how serious our sin is and how devastating its consequences are. 
So just so we're all on the same page, let's first by, start by defining what sin is. Sin is missing the mark. Falling short of the standard that God has set for us. And we have all sinned. And we all fall short of the standard that God has set for us. And is it, it isn't just rule-breaking. We are rebelling against a holy, righteous, and just God who created us in his image to follow him and follow him to perfection. And the worst possible consequences of our sin is that it breaks fellowship between us and God. And what makes this so sad and so significant is that we can do nothing about it. Sin destroys us. It causes, it, it, in this text, it has caused the death of Bathsheba's husband. It has caused the death of their baby. And ultimately, it will lead to a divided kingdom as David's future sons would continue to rebel. The book of 2 Samuel shows us how devastating the consequences of David's one act are for generations in this family. There's more murder, there's more sexual sin, there's more deceit. Man, sin is serious. David Platt also says that our sin is comprehensive, meaning it engulfs our whole person with completeness. Nothing is untouched in us that hasn't been touched by sin. Nothing is in us that has been untouched by sin. And our sin is also pervasive. It is widespread. Look at verses 5 and 6, and we're going to continue on this line of thinking. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David isn't just saying that he sinned. David isn't just saying that he sinned a few times but that he was sinful from the moment he was born. What happened when Adam and Eve fell is this. One of the consequences is this. Our biological makeup has now been infested with sin. Man, if you're a parent or you work with kids or have been around kids, think about those children. In our house, man, we try really hard to protect our kids from stuff that goes into their eyes and into their minds and into their hearts. So, like, for example, we try to monitor really closely what they watch on TV. So, violent TV shows, I've, I've talked to you guys about this. I like gang-related documentaries and cult-related documentaries. I don't watch that type of stuff when my kids are awake. Like, I don't watch violent TV shows when my kids are up. But here's something interesting. Two of my kids, they're 10 months apart. So at one point, we had two toddlers that were so close in age developmentally. And for a few weeks, both of them had vicious bite marks on their faces. When they'd given each other those bite marks. They were both still in foster care, too, so that was fun. Um, I don't know how these bite marks got there. CPS lady, they bit each other. Uh, just as a rule, just as a rule, in our house, we're not going around biting one another for fun. Like, as practice, we, don't, we just don't bite each other. It's, that's weird. But we are just predisposed to these type of evil behaviors. 
Our kids can be sweet one second and then losing their mind over something else two seconds later. We're all born sinful. We're all prone to pursue rebellion. We are all born selfish. We want what we want when we want it. We're so prone to pursue sin because our natures are geared towards sin and rebellion. Sin is comprehensive. Then it is pervasive. I mean, think about it. Just examine your motives. Even at your best, there are times when we are serving God in what may appear to be a Christ-like manner, and oftentimes our motives are rooted in selfishness. Like, what can I get out of this? I'm doing this for you, God, so you'll bless me on the back end. And oftentimes that line of thinking is so subtle. I mean, David was just taking a rooftop stroll. And it would lead to some disastrous effects. A mere glance across the way set into motion destruction. In David's case, friends and neighbors, take heed. David lusted toward a woman who was another man's wife committed adultery, tried to cover it up by deceit, that led to murder and the death of a child. And what the story teaches us, what David's story teaches us, is that sin is serious. You may not agree with me, but think about it. In Genesis 3, death entered into the world through one action. You may not think that eating a piece of fruit is that big of a deal. But God had given them a command. Through that one act of disobedience came condemnation. All of the world is infected by sin, and it is so dangerous to minimize it because it has devastating consequences. And with the backdrop of David's sin and David's plea for mercy, we have the cleansing power of the gospel in view. David has confessed his sin. He has moved from, how do I cover this up, to, I cannot believe I could treat God this way. He isn't blame shifting as we're so prone to do. He isn't making excuses for himself like, I was tired, so I did this. I was hungry, so I did this. She said this about me, so I gave her what she deserved. No, he's not blame shifting. He's owning his sin and owning his failure, and now he's just pleading with God for mercy. Verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Man, David says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop in the Old Testament was, was a plant that the Israelites used at Passover to paint the blood of the lamb over their doorpost 
in order for the Spirit of God to pass over, thus saving those inside the house. David, um, excuse me, during sacrifices, the priest would use this hyssop brush to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice onto the altar or sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice onto the people as a sign of blood covering their sin. Then the people would wash themselves, symbolizing the cleansing they had received by the blood. David is asking for this type of cleansing. David is asking for the sprinkling of blood for his cleansing. David has committed two sins, which according to the Old Testament laws, there is no forgiveness for. These two sins are punishable by death, murder and adultery. David should be put to death. David is pleading for grace, and he is pleading for mercy from the only one who can give it and who gives it freely. Man, there are two things that we have to hold in tension here. The penalty for sin. All sin is death. And God, by his perfect justice and righteousness, cannot overlook sin as if it didn't happen. If he were able to do so, he would not be the God of the Bible. That's what David means when he says in verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words. And in verse 6, about God delighting in truth in the inward being. This is where David in his lament turns from addressing God to complaint. And not complaining directed towards God's ambivalence like in previous Psalms of lament but rather complaint at the nature of his own heart to petitioning God to act. He is calling God to act. And David is asking God to act in spite of David himself. David is reminding himself of God's justice and calling God to action based on God's nature and character. David is asking God to remove his sins, to make him clean, to remember his sin no more, and to restore David a a remembrance of and a joy in David's salvation that was granted to David through faith in who God said he was and the promise of the coming Messiah to rescue and redeem God's people. David is then petitioning God to create in him a new heart. This is something only God can do. Verse 10 again. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Man, on this side of the resurrection, we know that the penalty of sin and death has been paid in and through the person and work of Jesus on the cross. And therefore, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been given a new heart. If you are a Christian, you have been purged with hyssop and have been sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, Jesus. When Christ has saved you, he has made you new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. David is resting in his identity as a new creation in God out of the forgiveness of sins. David is asking to be delivered and restored and out of his restoration this leads him to a place of worship. Verse 13 
He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will, de- you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David is calling on the missional ethic of forgiveness and grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us. David has no standing to plead for this level of forgiveness, but he is confident in who God says he is. Verse 13 through 15 tell us that David, as a response to this assured forgiveness, is a declaration of God's goodness. And he's committed to not keeping this good grace of God to himself. But he is telling other sinners in need of saving about how good God is. Verse 13 tells us that through our stories of our own forgiveness by Jesus, that other sinners will turn from their sin and place their faith in God. Worship, the worship of God is both personal and missional. Those who know how much they have been forgiven are now free to declare this truth of God to others. And that's a challenge and an encouragement to you, friends. Worship God freely in spirit and in truth and be bold. If you're worried about knowing what to say or if you're condemning yourself for the things you have done, grace and peace. God has promised that he is with you, Christian. And look at David. And then look at Jesus. David sinned in some horrible, horrible ways. And yet, he was a man, as Scripture tells us, a man after God's own heart. You cannot out the saving reach of Jesus. And let that truth of how much you've been forgiven and how much you are loved by a God who sees you, let that truth motivate your words and your deeds. And let that lead you to worship. Our sin has been dealt with. And therefore, we do not have to remain in our own self-deprecating, self-condemning mindsets. We get to operate out of the freedom and love that has been bought for us through the cross of Christ. Our only right response is love and devotion and the worship of Jesus. David says, because of your forgiveness, because of your faithfulness to keep your promises, my mourning will turn to joy. This is where the final stage of lament has occurred. David's sorrow has now turned to praise. He is saying that God will deliver him from the shame and guilt of his treasonous rebellion against God. God will save him. God will rescue him. And it will cause David to sing about how good God is. David in verse 13 says, I have a story to tell. I have done some of the most shameful things you and I could ever conjure up in our minds. And yet God was pleased to forgive. 
and God was pleased to restore. And David's only response is worship. People who know how much they have been forgiven are led to worship out of this new identity they have received through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I love verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Church, let me tell you what this means for you. This verse and this psalm and the life of David tells, tells us this. God is not impressed by how good of a churchgoer you are. God isn't impressed by how much money you give. God isn't impressed with how moral you are. God isn't impressed by your stuff or your bank account or anything else that we're striving after. Listen, all of your good works are nothing when compared to the magnitude of your sin. Filthy rags, as the Old Testament calls them. What God is pleased with, if you are a Christian, is Jesus' work to you on your behalf. And because of that, God is pleased with you. What God wants from you then is confession. Confession that you are a sinner. An honest confession and a humble confession. God, I have sinned in these ways and I can do nothing about it. Other than confessing that I need you. You and you alone, O God, have I sinned against. And I need your grace and mercy to me. God is pleased with Christ's blood. Christ's blood is sufficient. Christ's blood is the perfect and righteous sacrifice. Christ's blood, as the perfect and righteous, only sinless Savior, is the only pleasing and acceptable sacrifice that God will accept. We have to stop minimizing our sin. We have to stop making excuses for our sin. We have to stop blaming other people for our responses, even when they sin against us. When we do these things, we are communicating that we do not think our sin is a big deal. And it is such a big deal that the God of the universe had to come and die for your redemption. Man, when we sin, we think we know better than God. That's what we're communicating. That we think we can do it without God. And when we confess, we are communicating that we know how serious and significant and how devastating our sin is. This psalm is an invitation to not conceal our sin not to make excuses for our sin or minimize our sin or to stay living in it and accept it, but to run towards God's forgiveness, to run towards God's forgiving hand who knows exactly what we've done and is still pleased to offer us himself. Confession must be more and not merely be an outward spectacle but a real and authentic plea for a heart change. 
All other world religions are going to tell you to try harder, to do better, to be good, to be good enough. But true biblical Christianity tells you that the work has been done for you. So we get to rest in that. Forgiveness in Jesus tells us to come boldly to the foot of the cross of Christ and ask God to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. God, make us clean. Don't hide. Don't minimize. Confess. David Platt says, Concealment of sin is the pathway to misery. Confession of sin is the pathway to joy. Man, what would, what would our church, what would our uh, church culture look like in this town or in our country if we stopped pretending that we're okay? What would it look like if we stopped pretending that we had it all together? And if we just acknowledge that we're all just broken people in desperate need of the saving grace of Jesus. What would change in your life if you were just honest about stuff? Can you imagine the amount of love and freedom we would receive, not just from God, but also the safety and freedom of of being fully known and fully loved by God and one another. That's what I'm praying for in in this church. A church full of struggling sinners saved by grace who are just honest about it with God and each other and who get to be loved in spite of it all. A church full of people who are encouraged to lament our own brokenness and who are lovingly restored because of the cross of Jesus. Christian, that's for you. Fully known and fully loved. Man, if you're not a Christian in here, the invitation for you is the same. Confess your sins. Confess your sins to God and stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to do just enough, be good enough, or whatever else it is you are striving after. God loves you already. So repent. Turn from your sin and delight in God's gracious sacrifice of himself through Jesus to you. A couple weeks ago when we were in the lament the corporate lament we we lamented corporately just kind of for our town and for some of the goings on here this morning i want to lead us in a little bit of a of a corporate lament of sin if you're new we don't do this every week Um, this is a little different for us and so i'm just again going to ask you to take that that posture of, of prayer with your hands open out in front of you Confessing that I bring nothing to you, God. I have nothing to offer you. And then close your eyes, and I'm going to read this over you. And about halfway through, I'm going to pause and ask you to just consider some things in your own life that maybe you need to confess and repent of this morning. And then I'll close us, and we'll, and we'll respond. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And 
So again, take this posture, hands out in front of you, eyes closed, and let's pray together. Great God of mercy, you have been so good to us in spite of us. Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, you see the hearts and minds of every person in this room. Lord Jesus, you know us better than we even know ourselves. And yet, for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross for our shame and paid the penalty on our behalf. Lord, show us that it's your kindness that leads us to faith and leads us to the repentance of sin. Father, we confess our unworthiness We confess our unholiness. Lord, we confess that we are so undeserving before you, and yet you love us still. Thank you, Jesus, for being a God who is gracious. Church, I just ask you to consider the things in your life that you need to confess. And confess them to the Lord this morning as we pray together. Lord, we confess our own sins before you this morning. Lord, I pray for the men and women and children in this room, Lord, that you would draw us in in this moment, Lord. Soften our hearts to the ways that you are moving, the ways that you are calling us to faith and dependency, Lord. May we not harden our hearts towards you, Lord, but as prodigals running home back to the open embrace of God our Father. Lord, I pray that our sin would lead us to mourning and mourning of our own brokenness. Lord, you would turn our mourning into joy. Lord, forgive us for where we blame shift. Forgive us for where we minimize the things that we do. Great God, Father, lead us into faith and dependency, to confession and repentance, to faith and assurance of your pardon to us. King Jesus, by the cross and resurrection, make us clean, O God of our salvation. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.